Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. So your mentor, I, I can call Lou your uh, one of your mentors, right? He is, yes. And so he's brought on this, I mean, it's one of the most high-profile cases ever. Right. And he is going into it with the idea, like you said, well, this should be pretty simple. Mm-hmm. But he's also going into it with the idea that they want to know the truth. At mm-hmm. some point, he's hit... Like with a brick wall. Right. Mm-hmm. Do, do you remember uh, having any conversations with him uh, about his frustration and, and and what he felt that he needed to do? Uh, we had many discussions. And, you know, I don't know if it was a brick wall immediately, but he, he definitely um, came across evidence that didn't support the Ramseys did it. And the more he got into it, the more evidence supported the intruder theory as, as he developed it. And then I think after, it was it was more than a couple of weeks, it might have been a month or two, I think that's when he realized oh, that there was a brick wall, that he was being stonewalled. And when he would bring up information to the um, uh, Boulder uh, police, um, it would be dismissed or, or they would try to... Um, uh, uh, exclude the evidence through some, some rationale. For example, when Lou pointed out in the crime scene photos taken that morning of the basement with that window standing wide open and the suitcase standing up right below it, uh, and there's also what Lou thought was to be a black scuff mark on the wall. So when, when he's pointing to the crime scene photos that Boulder Police crime scene technicians had taken, and he's showing the detectives that that is evidence a forced entry. One of the first things the Boulder police said is, oh, no, no, nobody could have gotten in that window. Well, Lou, Lou is frustrated because he's trying to explain, well, well, that's how John Bonet's dad got into the home when he left his keys in the house. And, and so what Lou did 
is he um, had himself videotaped crawling in and out of that window. And Lou, I think at the time was, I don't know, he was always in good shape. I think he was probably mid-60s at the time, but he would show that, you know, I, I can get in and out of that window here, watch. And he had had himself videotaped and then showed that videotape to the Boulder detectives and they would just ignore it. And, and then they would, you know, go on, you know, to something else. And Lou said, that's what was really so frustrating was you would confront them with physical evidence and then they would dismiss it. A good example is the, is the foreign D- DNA that was uh, uh, under the little girl's fingernails on the crotch of her panties. And then in 2008, it was also determined to be on, uh, below the waistband of, her, of the long johns that she was wearing for, for pajama bottoms. And so when Lou pointed out that not only does that exclude the, any members of the Ramsey family, it gives us something to work with because it's it, it it's male, so we can stop looking at at women being involved it, it, unless there you know is a conspiracy here or or someone else involved. But he said we we need to find out who who's who, who's the the male who left that foreign DNA um, uh, on her clothing and on her body. And so what the Boulder police would do is they would say you know that could be anything, you know, that, that might've been, uh, you know, casual contact, you know, DNA that was, you know, from trace or touch DNA that was left, you know, for casual contact. And what Lou would say was, well, that makes no sense. <laughs> he said, you know, I, I don't know what you're thinking, but it, 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 um, anytime that there's uh, unknown male DNA found on the crotch of a little girl's panties, that's, that's not, uh, you know, casual touch. That's, that's evidence of, of uh, something that's, that's really wrong, but then it's the same. It matches uh, the genetic markers of the same that's underneath the fingernails. And when the, the, the genetic material, it, this tissue that is, is forcibly under her fingernails that was found at the autopsy, that's evidence of her clawing and scratching that her assailant, you know, try, trying to, um, uh, breathe. She's fighting for her life. And they just, no, that, you know, that, that's not what that means. And Lou just would, would just be just beside himself. She says, I can't understand how you can, you know, just simply try to just dismiss this evidence because it doesn't fit with your theory that, that the Ramses have done it. Did you ever meet Ollie Gray? Oh yes. I knew Ollie very well. In fact, when I was a sheriff, he came to work for me for a few months as my comptroller. No, knew him very, very well. Could you tell our listeners, most of our listeners will not know who he is. Could you tell our listeners who Ollie Gray was in his, in relation to the, the Ramsey case? Yes. Ollie was a, a friend of Lou's as well. And, um, there was an, another uh, person that, that is very important here too, John St. Augustine. And when um, John ran after Lou had, had had resigned from the Boulder DA's office, he continued working the case for himself, but uh, on his own, his own time, his own expense. But he he didn't want it to look like he was working for the Ramses, so he would never take any money from the Ramses, and he wanted to objectively investigate the case, not at the direction of the Ramses. So when the Ramses said, "Well, we really need to hire." some competent private investigators because Boulder police obviously were not going to be able to clear this on their own. And so Lou recommended Ollie Gray and John St. Augustine. John had also worked for me at the sheriff's office 
and a bright young investigator. Ollie has since passed on. John is still around. But um, uh, they worked the case um, uh, as private investigators for the Ramsey family for some time, maybe for, for a year or two. And I know that, that, and Ollie did have a law enforcement background from California and um, new investigations, was a very competent PI. And uh, I know he stayed in, t- and John St. Augustine stayed in touch with Lou and they had frequent um, discussions. And I, I, uh, I, and I, I don't know specifically what Lou would have given them or received from them. But I do know Lou was very good about sharing information and particularly if it fit into um, a a profile or a suspect or person of interest that um, the Ramsey's private investigators were were pursuing. So I know Lou was very supportive and and, uh, hoping that Ollie and John would would have some, some, some success. But it's my understanding Ollie Gray was the only individual in all these decades of this case dragging on and on. He's the only person that ever worked for both sides of the table, correct? He worked for with Boulder for a while and then decided to go and work with the Ramses. And while working with the Ramses, it's my understanding, he told John Ramsey immediately, look, if I find anything that suggests that, that you or Patsy or Burke that somebody inside the Ramsey household did this, I'm turning it into Boulder immediately. Is that correct? Correct, except for one exception. He, Ollie never worked with the Boulder Police Department or the Sheriff's Office direct, directly. He did work with um, Lou and I at the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. But when he was hired by the Ramseys, he had left the DA's office. He had already been retired from law enforcement agency in California when I hired him to come into the sheriff's office, but you're, you're right. Not only he, but John St. Augustine and Lou, had they ever come across any evidence that, you know, that, uh, it, it, uh, that, um, suggested any of the Ramses were involved, they would have definitely turned that over. That was, that was the kind of people that they were. They wouldn't sit on that. Even if they were, uh, uh employed by the Ramses, they would have resigned, that position and then turned in the information. That's they were very Ollie was very ethical that way. What are the the keys to this investigation as far as getting it solved? The evidence. I know that you point to five very vital pieces of evidence that support Lou Smith's intruder theory. Could you take us through those five vital pieces of evidence? Happy to. The first one is the paracord and. Uh, the second one is the um, uh, black duct tape. The third one is the stun gun. The f- um, and, and all those those three items are still uh, valid, with this exception that after 27 years, whether or not we can find the paracord, you know that the that the bindage was was removed for, or the parent roll from the duct tape or the stun gun, at this point in the possession of the killer, is very doubtful. Um, the fourth item of evidence that Lou always talked about that supported his intruder theory was the um, uh, high-tech boot print. And what Lou did not know, and I did not know this until after the, the book had been published, um, one of the other team members that's on our Smith family team, Kurt Pillard, came across a report um, in a, um, a, a Boulder Police um, supplemental report that got released after Lou's passing in 2010. 
and it in this this lab report talked about at least one or may, might have been more than one Boulder police officers who were in the crime scene did admit to having high tech boots. Uh, so um, what Lou didn't know is that boot print very easily could have belonged to one of the first responders, one of that with the Boulder police. So we we have we don't put a, a lot of credibility onto that boot print. But the most important piece of evidence, the fifth piece of evidence that Lou always believed would be the, the what solved this case was the unknown male DNA that's on uh, three pieces of uh, her the clothing, two pieces of clothing, the long johns, the the underwear, and then under her um, uh, fingernails uh, and the scrapings that, that came from the autopsy. And, um, and um, our team, one of the things that we've been working with is the genetic markers, the DNA markers that Lou left um, in his case report, that, that uh, supplemental reports, investigative notes that were passed down to his family that our team has had access to, that the, those three locations, the, the the DNA genetic markers do fit. Now we didn't have a complete set. I think I think there's at least fourteen, maybe fifteen genetic markers now, but it is sufficient to to have it into the CODIS, the Combined DNA Information System that the FBI maintains. One other uh, piece of uh, positive news: a couple things. Just to leave the interview on a, a, a kind of on a on an up note, a hopeful note. That, that our team, um, and I think the Ramsey family also finds some comfort, is that um, the, the, the DNA technology has evolved so significantly in the last 27 years that, that law enforcement agencies are clearing cold cases that are 20, 25, 30 years old by going back to the original evidence, the, the original article of evidence, and retesting that using more modern DNA technologies. And what what, what, is, what has been so um, uh, ho- uh, uh, helpful is that what we used to uh, have to look at uh, when, you, when you did DNA analysis maybe you know, 15 or 20 years ago, it was being measured in um, nanograms, which is a, a very small, minute amount. But today, the, the technology is is able, and I'm not a DNA expert, but but it it is known that the DNA can be measured now in picograms, which are significantly smaller um, uh, uh, amounts, and so that's highly encouraging. The second part of that is that the databases every year keep growing exponentially, whether it's law enforcement databases or public um, or private DNA uh, databases. And that's how a lot of cases that that you all know about um, have been solved, like the Golden State Killer. They didn't actually have the killer's DNA. They were able to get into the familial DNA and uh, found a, a relative, I think it was a niece who lived in another state, and her DNA um, showed that the killer's DNA, that they shared a common ancestor. And that's what we hope, um, and that was one of the reasons to, to get the book out, was to encourage law enforcement agencies to continue to do that. The other encouraging thing, just within the last few months, is that the Boulder police have released um, uh, statements, and the Boulder District Attorney 
have um, made comments that um, uh, that the case is being looked at, the evidence is being reevaluated, and um, using more modern technologies. The district attorney in Boulder, um, the now DA, uh, Michael Doherty, he even commented in the news uh, recently that the FBI are also assisting. And that's very encouraging because the FBI has some very bright people. Um, uh, you know, they, they have access to some cutting edge technologies and DNA. And of course, they maintain the um, CODIS, the, the, the National um, DNA Database. So what we're really hopeful uh, in, in, in going into this holiday season is that there's never been a better time for this case, the John Benet Ramsey case, to be solved than now. That I think um, the family feels this too, the Smith family team, that we hope the Boulder police and the law enforcement agencies that are around them now um, are doing everything that they can to take an objective look at the, the physical evidence using modern technologies for DNA analysis. And hopefully that will identify the person responsible for the crime, which in some people's mind will be the only way for the Ramsey family ever to be removed from that umbrella of suspicion. Yeah. And if it gets solved, it grants Lou's dying wish because I, I don't think people understand how, uh, and, and I think when you were, if you use the word obsessed, that sometimes people use that as a bad thing. He's on his deathbed yeah. and his family wants to talk about good times. And there's video right. footage that I've seen where he's like, no, no, you guys right. need to listen to me. And he's going right. page by page in his, in his case files to explain to him what each page means. Mm-hmm. And uh, he set up that list of people that I know that they've been uh, going through and, and trying to get DNA and testing through that list. So Mm-hmm. As much as you want justice for this little girl and, and her family and for that community, uh, I really believe uh, if there ever is um, an arrest that Lou is is, is uh, directly responsible for that. You're, you're so right, because I would never written the book had it not been for, for Lou. And not only do we want justice for John Bonet and, of course, on a personal note, I'd l- I'd really like to see Lou um, his, his theory be proven right, and and the family being a- the Ramsey family being able to enjoy a regular Christmas and not have to worry about this if if that's possible. Uh, our Smith family team we talk about this all the time too. We meet probably once a month or or every five or six weeks. We've got uh, our list from Lou, you know, of our top twenty people that we continue to. To work on and what we would love to do as a team is to be able to close all of our investigation down too and ha- and just live a normal life it, it, like like everybody else this has taken a lot of time and energy and and we had all made such a commitment to Lou that we just can't back away from that um, that was it was a really emotional time for all of us uh, and for Lou when he was diagnosed with cancer, when it returned and, and admitted to hospital or hospice, uh, he was able to go home for, for a couple of weeks and he had a visiting nurse. And I know that's when he put a lot more of the case in, organized it a little bit better for us because he knew he was, wasn't going to get around to many of those, those leads. But his last several weeks in hospice, as he continued, every time I would 
would go see him every couple of days. You know, he was slipping a little further and a little further. And um, the last three days when I, before he passed, he was pretty much in a coma. We weren't able to have any communication two-way. I'd sit and talk to him and hold his hands. But when when he was able to talk, we'd talk about the good times and laugh about things and our friends and joke and and uh, I remember uh, he said, you know, I, one of the good things about hospice is they let you eat or drink, you know, anything you want, even though we didn't have much of an appetite at the end. But they'd say, yeah, I want ice cream and it's, you know, in the m- middle of the morning or whatever, or beer. I know I walked in one time and I don't know if the nurses knew this, but he had a six pack of beer that one of the detectives had brought in. So we enjoyed a, another beer together, last beer. But uh, the conversations always would come around and say, now, don't forget Bootman and and saying, don't forget so-and-so and remember to look at this and don't forget about the evidence. And, and those were our last conversations. It was, it was, it was foremost on his mind. And, and you're, you're right, Nick. I don't think obsessed is the right word. I think it was just driven or dedicated. I, I think, uh, you know, people uh, probably have a hard time, you know, um, grasping that, but, Lou was such a uh, unique um, man and such a, uh, uh, a consummate professional. And he'd never believed he worked for, you know, the police department or, you know, Sergeant so-and-so or Captain so-and-so. He always, he always said, I work for the victim. And I think that was, was really his, uh, his take on the Ramsey case. He didn't work for John or Patsy or any of the Ramsey family. He worked for John Bonet. That was that was who he he worked for. And Lou, one of his dying wishes was that this case would finally be solved. And we also have go back in time, Patsy Ramsey, on her deathbed, asking Lou to find out who did this. Yes, that was a conversation that Lou and I, that Lou shared with me um, when Patsy was on her deathbed in hospice. Lou flew down to Atlanta to see her one last time. And um, a part of that, you know, he told me later was to see if she wanted to give a dying confession. Not that he ever thought she'd ever confess to that, but he wanted to make sure he closed that door. And so she didn't give dying confession. She gave the opposite. She gave him the charge, you know, to, to, to continue pursuing that this killer don't 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 give up and and that that really did motivate Lou not that he needed additional motivation but I I think uh, I I know that was a, a, a an emotional trip when he he went to visit her that last time and um, when Lou was in hospice John Ramsey came and visited Lou and uh, that was. Um, John Ramsey told me, so that he said, I tried to go in to, to give Lou encouragement and cheer him up, but he said it turned out to be the other way around. <laughs> um, yeah, Lou was quite a, quite a guy. Tell everybody about the JBR Smith family team. I know you've talked about it just a little bit, but really tell us what that is. What is the objective? What is the strategy that you're employing to try to reach those goals? Great question. And thanks for, for bringing that in, Nick. It, um, when Lou passed away in 2010, he had all of his uh, investigative notes. He had put together uh, a spreadsheet, 883 um, um, entries on this spreadsheet, 53 columns. 
uh, he had a, uh, a PowerPoint presentation that had grown to 632 slides. And he showed me this as it's evolving. And he had all of his investigative notes and crime scene photos and autopsy photos and autopsy reports. And, and he had everything so organized that when you'd walk into his home, he said, hey, I want, I want to show you this. And so we were very familiar with what he had put together. And then when he passed away, all of his, his, his wife, Barb, had already had passed away from cancer a few years before. So all of Lou's investigative notes and his computer and his case file, all was part of his estate that got passed down to his four children. And within about a month of his uh, passing, um, uh, his middle daughter, Cindy, called me. And she said, hey, John, He's, she said, you know, hey, we've got all the dad's you know, investigative notes and his spreadsheet and, and everything. And he said, you know, we're, we're going to assemble a team, um, and do what dad said, uh, um, and, and continue working this case because we don't believe Boulder will ever solve this on their own. And, and Lou left us with all of this information to work with. Will you come and be a part of the team? And before I could answer yes or no, because I was, I'd retired from the sheriff's office and I was working for Lockheed Martin doing a lot of travel and and uh, but before I could say yes or no, she said, and Dave Spencer's already agreed to be a part of it because she she knew how close Dave and I were to, to to one another as well as to Lou. And so when she told me Dave Spencer was on board already, I said, ah, okay, I I'm in because I knew how w organized Dave was and what a competent detective he was as well as a private investigator when he re retired from the PD. So. Um, so since 2010, the Smith family, JBR, John Benet Ramsey, JBR team, we've been meeting um, at least once a month or maybe every six weeks, probably an average of 10 times a year. Um, and what we do is we go through our top 20 list. We've gone out um, on more than a dozen cases of persons of interest left from Lou, where we'll um, try to obtain that person's DNA and um, submit it to the lab. We, we pay for the DNA analysis uh, on our own. Um, after a few years, uh, the first few years, we just had to pass the hat because we didn't have any money. And, and, uh, uh, but after a few years, uh, Cindy did put together a GoFundMe uh, uh, account. And um, we had budgeted at that time for our top 20, we were averaging about $5,000 per test. And that included the travel to fly out to um, a hotel or if we had to stay somewhere in the, in the lab analysis, that was a, a good average. So we thought to get our top 20, we would need $100,000. So that was our um, GoFundMe account target. Last I looked, I think we were up to like 62 or 63,000. And um, uh, that might be one thing we could do, Nick and Captain is is if I send you the link, maybe you can, you know, make that available, you know, to your listeners. Um, there, there's three different accounts. Only one of them is connected to our, our team. And so I want to make sure everybody gets the, the right, the right one. But, um, we've had some very generous, uh, donations and you can look on there and you can see, you know, who's donated and how much the Ramsey family, um, Jeff Ramsey's, uh, contributed several times. That's John's brother. One of the neat things we had was um, a lady who had read my book that I'd never met. She called me and she said, uh, John, I'm in, uh, really impressed with your book. And we really want to see your Smith family team uh, succeed. 
And she said, I'm prepared today to make a $10,000 donation. And I sent her the link, you know, and you, you kind of think, ah, you know, is this a scam, you know, or are they going to want my, you know, account number or whatever. But she was true to her word. Within hours, we had a $10,000 uh, donation from an anonymous source. And that, that's helped a lot. And uh, I think we have, we have several thousand dollars in there now, but I know the Ramsey family have said, you know, hey, if, if you guys start running low, you, you let us know and, and we'll contribute. And sometimes we've, we've gone out and actually approached somebody who was on the, the list. And a lot of these names are known, you know, they've been in other people's books. And, and so we'll go up to, to somebody and contact them and say, hey, you know, you were brought up as a potential suspect, you know, back in 97 or 98. And, and, and if they were falsely accused, we say, you know, we can give you an opportunity to clear yourself if you want, and, and we'll pay for it. And um, so sometimes we've had a couple of persons of interest willingly uh, give us a, a DNA. It's usually just a, an oral swab on a Q-tip that we submit to the lab. And um, uh, a couple of times, you know, they kind of hesitated, and we said, well, if we gave you $300 or $500, would that, would that um, um, you know, work better for you? So we we have paid for a few DNA samples, and when we when we when we get a sample off of discarded DNA or whatever, we we kind of hold our breath, you know, hoping that this is the one. And um, it takes a painful amount of time to get the analysis back, and so we've had many disappointments um, that 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 we sent in somebody that could be a, a strong person that was on loose list and it comes back negative but i keep hearing my uh, former partner's voice in my ear saying okay now we know who didn't do it let's let's move on to the next one next man up Have you ever thought about why your wireless bill is so damn expensive? It's all just radio waves, and how much can a radio wave really cost? Seems like Big Wireless got together and decided, $100 a month? I think they'll buy it. What choice do they have? Now, thanks to Mint Mobile, you do have a choice. For a limited time, all phone plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plan's jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. I made the switch. I'm enjoying it. The secret is in the sauce over at Mint Mobile. 5G for free, no extra overhead, flexible plan options. Your unlocked device and current phone number are always welcome at Mint Mobile. I made the switch. I love it. You should do the same. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. So you have people that you've eliminated. You have a top 20 persons of interest list, and these are lists that you at one time shared with Boulder PD, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, we've shared that uh, list in confidence. Then we, when we've eliminated somebody on our top 20, we go back to Lou's spreadsheet and we take the next most likely person and bump them up into the top 20. Uh, Lou left it, uh, his 883 entry spreadsheet in four tiers, tier one, two, three, four. Tier one is who we thought needed the, the most look. And he had, he had eliminated um, probably over 100 people. Well, maybe not that many. Anyway, he had eliminated a number of people before he passed on. And then our team has eliminated and, and reprioritized. I think last count was like 123 other other names. Some of them you know, was a name that was brought up as a potential suspect. And then once you look at them, you can say, well, it can't be this guy because you know he died in, you know, 95 or this guy was in prison since 93 or or whatever so so you can eliminate some without doing the dna but the ones that remain we we look at oh who is most likely being bolder was there some motive um you know uh, uh we also because of lou had access to the bolder um uh dna um uh, lab uh, reports that showed you know, who had been uh, eliminated uh, previously. So we were able to, you know, exclude some of those. But when we, when we gave our top 20 to Boulder police, we've done this a couple of times and the Boulder DA, we said, you know, if, if there's somebody on this list that you've already eliminated, could you please let us know that way we're not bothering them or we're not, you know, wasting our time and money. And our first meeting with the DA is he agreed to do that. And then the second meeting, six months later, um, they refused to, to do that. But we still keep sending them the, the names that we've eliminated. We let them know who we're, we're looking at. But, um, yeah, so far, um, as Commander Trujillo told me going in, that, you know, this is a one-way street. We're not sharing any information with you. Tom Trujillo is, was the ca- commander of the um, homicide unit for for years, he'd been on the original crime scene, and uh, one time was a friend of mine. But um, Tom, Tom was uh, um, disciplined along with five other Boulder detectives in Jan or in December of last year for not thoroughly investigating their cases, and he was removed as the captain uh, of detectives and put into patrol on midnights, and then. These other detectives either left or were um, disciplined for not uh, thoroughly uh, investigating their cases. The Boulder Police uh, Public Information Officer put out a statement that had nothing to do with the John Benet Ramsey case, but 
High Boys Maintain had everything to do with the Jumbany Ramsey case because unfortunately that was the culture that Lou bumped up to in 96 and 97 was they just were not interested or, or didn't know how or didn't have the right supervision, you know, to thoroughly investigate their, their cases. So there is a new captain, um, commander, there's uh, new detectives, there's new leadership, there's a different police chief than that was there back when this happened. So we're, uh, our team, our Smith family team, we're continuing to, to meet and pursue our top 20 list, but we're also wishing Boulder police, the FBI, whoever's involved in this case, Colorado Bureau investigation, uh, much success because we would just love to see the case solved for the family and and um, be able to close this case once and for all. I, I should also mention mo- one of the other motivations is like with a, with the uh, Heather Don Church case is the likelihood of this killer as violent as a crime as this is that this being a, a, a one off is is minimal. You know this this is the type of a violent um, pedophile that you know, just doesn't start off, you know, at that, that level of violence, you know, they, they increase their, um, MO, um, modus operandi. They, 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 they fine tune that they get more and more violent, more and more creative. And so the likelihood that there's not victims before and and most likely after, um, this murder is, is minimal. So I, I think like with the Heather Don church case, whenever this person's identified, there's a strong likelihood that there'll be a pattern of um, violent uh, offenses. So we, we hope that it's solved not just to get justice for John Bonet and prove Lou right, but more importantly is to get this this violent pedophile off the street if he's still out there. Do you have, and I know I, we don't want to get too specific about names here on, on either one of your lists, but as far as your persons of interest go in you have a top 20. Lou had a spreadsheet that had many more names on it than that. Are all of these persons identified like, or any of them referenced and not identified by name? All of ours are identified by name in our top 20. There are several with Lou's um, entries. When you look at the 883, you'll see a nickname or you'll see someone referred to as a landscaper, for example, um, but, but, uh, or a plumber who had been in the house three months before or something. And uh, Lou, Lou was convinced that the killer had access to the home before the night of the murder. It, it just seems like knew where things were located. And, um, Lou believed that he probably even went through that, that, um, window in the, in the basement, uh, before that night. So Lou was looking, um, uh, very carefully at other people who had access to the home. And so there were a few people on his list that didn't have a name, but were referenced to in, in some capacity. A good example, most people know who followed this case, no, um, the reference to Santa Claus, that person was later identified and, and through DNA, that person was eliminated as a potential, uh, suspect. But yes, to answer your question, there are some that are either known as a nickname or partial name or, or some, some tagline. Do you recall if the running man is on that list? Oh, I remember something about the running man. Hmm. I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, the running man has always kind of spooked me a bit, and and I don't know that there's much known about him other than 
one or two persons saying that they thought they saw a tall, slender man running uh, in the area at some point that day. Yeah, I know our teams, oh, yeah, it goes back a few years. We did spend some time on, on this running man theory, but um, I don't I don't know that that was ever run, um, tracked down or identified. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. Good thought. Captain, do you have any... Uh, last questions. I got, oh, I got like a, mil- I got well, like a yeah, million. There's only a hundred thousand questions in this case, but Mr. Anderson, you had a, correct me if I'm wrong, but with the, uh, you know, I read the book months and months ago because it came out early this year. And I believe you said in the book that you have a, do you have a website or somewhere that people can go to view more? information about the case yes yeah thank you i i should have mentioned that earlier um my publisher for lou and john benet is wild blue press and uh, they have um, a website and what i did with permission of the fan of lou's family is in the book the hardcover and the softcover i have 36 slides that uh, from lou's original presentation that are are printed in in the book in the middle of the book kind of is like photos in my audio book. Um, obviously since you wouldn't have, you know, access to those photos, my publisher offered to host the photos that I wanted to include on their website while bluepress.com. And if you look up my book, Lou and John Bonet, instead of doing the same 36 photos that are in the book, we picked 20 other photos that are not in the book, crime scene photos. So if you if you compare the two, that's 56 slides of Lou's that he put together. They're all his notes. And um, I think that gives people uh, a really good overview of the crime scene, the autopsy. Nothing overly gory or bloody there. But um, there are a few autopsy photos, like, for example, the stun gun marks. And um, so if, if, if anybody's interested in, in looking at the slides that Lou put together... I think that the wildbluepress.com is real is is very good for that. And then they've also put together a couple of good. Um, oh, let's see. There's been some blogs and some other things that they've done a good job with. And what we'll do, Nick or Captain, if one of you, when this is uh, finished and and you put it out, if you'll send me a link, I'll get that added to the uh, website for Wild Blue Press uh, as well. Another thing that was really incredible with your book that is just, I mean, there's no shortage of books about the John Bonet case, but this is the right. only book that I've seen that features the floor diagrams, the layout of the complete yeah. house, the yeah. first floor, second floor, third floor. It has every room of the house in the basement included. So I thought that was, if you don't understand the crime scene, there's no way to understand the case. And so to include stuff like that, in a case that's been so convoluted over the years and in a case where people are so heavily charged up about their theory or thoughts of who did it, but there's still a lot of information out there that, that most people just don't know. So thank you for including those diagrams in your book. You're very welcome. And that, and that's a very good observation. And I can't take credit for that because that's vintage Lou Smith. He's the one who put together those four diagrams um, using his, uh, computer. And, um, uh, so, uh, I think that that shows why this book is unique is because Lou had access to the crime scene 
personally. I mean, he, he went there and he took those measurements to make that those diagrams and to see how, you know, where was the evidence found? Where is this blue suitcase at? Where is this baseball at? Baseball bat at? And I think what makes the book unique, and I realized that I was in the unique position to, or a position of responsibility to, to get those out there, was because I was one of the few people that, that had access to Lou's spreadsheet and his, his case file, his notes, thanks to his family. So, yes, I think that is what's different from other books because a lot of the other authors, you know, um, studied, you know, what was in the newspaper, might have gotten copies of reports, but Lou was actually there. He, he was in the crime scene. Um, I, I've been to the Ramsey, uh, former Ramsey home several times, but I was never inside. But Lou was many, many times. So he had an intimate understanding of the, of the um, crime scene inside and, and out. One other thing that, um, and thank you for the nice compliments about my book. It, it, any book, as you guys know, is a, is a team effort. And um, one of the things that I'm most proud of on the book is the cover. And one of the few uh, requests I made of, of my publisher, Wild Blue Press, was I had two photos that I had, one of Lou, and uh, that was the first day in uh, the sheriff's office, January 10th, 1995, when we were both sworn in. I became the sheriff. He became my captain detective. So I wanted that photo of Lou, one of my favorite photos on the cover. And then the photo of John Benet was one of my favorite photos. And I had a different photo that came out of Lou's case file of her in her kindergarten class. And... Um, I sent them to as a mock-up of the cover to her dad, and I said, "Hey, John, these are the this is kind of what the cover is looking like." And and you know, I did not want a glamour shot. There were too many books out there with that, and and Lou never saw John Bonet as a beauty queen. He always saw her as a little innocent little kindergartner as she, as she was. And so um, when I sent the the other mock-up of the book cover to her dad. Um, he sent me a nice little email and he said, I like that photo too. But he said, John, could you use this one instead? He said it was John Bonet's first day of kindergarten. And he said, it's one of my favorite photos. And Patsy took that photo right before, um, uh, right before she put her in the car and took her to her first day of kindergarten. And it's a, it's a neat little uh, photo because it shows her with her little backpack slung over her shoulder, and she's got a little plastic apple that has treats or something for the kids. I don't actually know what's in there. And then her little dog, Jock, and it's a cute little outfit that I'm sure Patsy picked out to wear for the first day of kindergarten. But I think it gives you a, a real look at two important photos, two people who never met and are forever linked in history through this case. Is there something, as you guys have looked through you know, it's been a team effort to look through Lou's case files. Is there something that you feel like he got wrong? Hmm, what a good question. Well, certainly the high tech boot, we've had to take, you know, um, a step back on that. Um, yeah. Cause I remember talking to him specifically about that boot print and he said, yeah, he said, none of the Boulder police, um, uh, you know, uh, have been confirmed to wear high-tech boots. They've been asked. They didn't. Um, let's see. So I'm convinced he's, he, he just didn't have the right information. Uh, I can't really say he was wrong on that. Um, let's see. Hmm. No, I think, uh, yeah, I can't think of, 
of anything else. I think um, I think it's the opposite. <laughs> I think the more and more our team, you know, have gone through the lab analysis, the reports, the more we realized that he was spot on. A good example of that was the DNA, the initial reports had um, under like the fingernails, and I can't remember the exact numbers. I think there were like six genetic markers on the two hands, left and right, initially. And I think there were like nine that came off of the underwear. Then they were the same six or, or ones that, that were on the nine. And so Lou was was uh, convinced, you know, that this was from the same person. The 2008 analysis with the long johns, now here's a different article of clothing, and it gives us, uh, I think there was 11 or 12 genetic markers on that one. There were more anyway, but it was the same six that were in the fingernails that were on the long johns, the same nine that were on the underwear. So it, what, what it's done, uh, Nick, is it's kind of done the opposite. Every time we get a little bit more physical evidence, a little more corroborating evidence information, it really substantiates that Lou was right all along. Yeah, and I think a lot of people that have looked into this case after Lou, they nitpick things like where they go, just like the window. I think what Lou was able to prove is – because there was a lot of speculation that, that the Ramses would leave doors unlocked or mm-hmm. people that worked for the Ramses would say not only were the doors unlocked, but there would be a jar. And, mm-hmm. and, and there was, it's such a big house that, you know, John Ramsey would come downstairs and have to start shutting windows and shutting doors and locking things because the kids would just leave things open. But I also think he proved like, well, even if there was locked doors and locked windows, here's a way that the intruder could get in. Right. And I think that's where I think people nitpick. They go, well, there's no proof that somebody went through there. But it's like, no, he, he's just pointing out that there's the possibility. If there was an unlocked door or a jarred door, then the intruder could have gotten in that way. I've always argued that possibly they went through the window or possibly went through a door. But I, I believe that the the intruder was trying to leave through that window. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, and Lou definitely would have agreed with you. And, and again, you know, having the, the body found in the basement, just, you know, within, I don't know how many feet from that window, the scuff mark below the window. Um, there were, there were some, um, other things that, you know, led Lou to believe that that was likely the POI, the point of entry, but also the point of exit in what Lou knew being an experienced uh, police officer, most burglars that commit a crime, they enter um, a a dwelling or or business um, through whatever, you know, a door or window, but that's the majority of the time their point of exit as well, because they're familiar with that route. You know, that's how they entered. And so most burglaries, and I can't, I don't remember the statistic. It's 80, 80 some percent of burglars that that enter a home exit through that same uh, point of entry. So I think Lou was aware of that, but I think because the the murder happened in the basement, that would have been the closest exit that the suspect was familiar with. And then that suitcase being positioned upright, Lou said, you know, and he had crawled in and out of that window several times, said it, it's kind of hard to get up in the window unless you have something to stand on. And that's, that's what he believes that was positioned like it was. 
And when John Ramsey walked down there, one of the first things he said was that suitcase wasn't there. You know, we didn't keep the suitcases upright, you know, underneath that window. Some Someone's positioned that there. Yeah, and that's another, um, I think, point of argument when, when I've talked to this uh, about this case with other individuals is to go, well, how would John know that? Because the house was so large. And like you pointed out, yeah, the house was large, but the basement was not a full basement. It was a mm-hmm. partial basement. Right, right. Yeah. Um, if I can leave with, with this request, uh, if it doesn't sound too self-serving, but t- people o- often ask when I do a talk or, or book signing, they say, well, how can we help? The two, two things that, that really do help with the book, as you guys know, the more Amazon reviews the book gets, the, the higher the ratings are. Yes. And the whole intent is to get the story out there. So if someone takes the time to read the book, would they please you know, consider doing a, um, a review on Amazon because that'll help get that much more exposure to the book. And then the second thing, if someone that reads the book or, or listens to the, uh, this program, if you have the financial ability to make a donation to the uh, GoFundMe account, we really would appreciate it. Even if it's just $10 or $50 or whatever, um, it, it's a way of uh, us continuing our work. Again, we're not um, uh, in, uh, in dire straits financially, but the more people that contribute, the more we can do. So if someone is in a position to make a, a donation to our GoFundMe account, none of us get paid. Uh, the money only goes to reimburse us if we um, have to travel or, or go in a hotel, and it's mostly used for to pay for the DNA testing. So we're not we're not making any money off of this, but it does help us uh, with the expenses to continue our work. Yes, of course. Thank you so much, Mr. Anderson, for joining us today and telling us about the great Lou Smith and his involvement in the Ramsey case and your continued involvement and your team's involvement in seeing this thing through well thank you and the captain for your time today and sharing this story want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage if you have thoughts and opinions on this interview share them with us at our blog at truecrimegarage.com while you're there check out our recommended reading page colonel do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners today yes we do captain and of course this week we are going to be recommending lou and john benet a legendary lawman's quest to solve a child beauty Queen's Murder by John Wesley Anderson, our guest that you heard here today and yesterday in the garage. Make sure you pick up his book. It's it's a great way to review Lou's career, Mr. Anderson's career, and then Lou Smith working and his findings on the John Bonet case. That's Lou and John Bonet. You can find that title and many other wonderful titles on our recommended page by going to our website, truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't live.